Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. I am very excited to welcome John Houston, CEO of Arvinus. John, welcome to the show. Great. Nice to meet you. You too. And uh, yeah, I'm super excited to have you on because the protein degrader space has really exploded in the last little while and, and your company in particular has just done so many exciting things. So I'm, I'm happy to have you on and talk about all of it. Um, and I think what first might be useful is if you give some background to listeners about Arvinus. Absolutely. Um, and uh, great to be here. Yeah, Arvinus was founded in 2013. Um, by uh, Professor Craig Cruz from Yale University. We're based here in uh, Connecticut, in New Haven. And uh, the company initially started with a focus uh, that Craig had on um, proteolysis targeting chimeras and hijacking the, the normal protein degradation process within the cells. Um, and his aim, his vision was to build a, a company that could focus on making small molecules Mm-hmm. that could eventually turn into um, therapeutic um, uh, modalities. And, and since then, the company has grown uh, from a very small start. As we stand today, we've got uh, over 250 employees, um, and we've been able to move our pipeline forward quite significantly from those early days, and a whole series of firsts for the technology and the platform. And as you said, having um, the, the luxury of being the only company in 2013, there's mm-hmm. probably now 35 or 40 companies yeah. in the space, including the big pharma companies, uh, really showing that protein degradation is uh, a really significant new therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys really blazed a trail for all these pipelines that have come online now. And uh, yeah, it, it's exciting. You guys have a couple of very active programs. And I think before we get into that, I was hoping that you could explain to listeners about Maybe the benefits on why a protac might be a better method of targeting a disease rather than traditional methods like inhibitors or genetic approaches. Yeah, so normally when, when um, somebody has a disease and uh, there's a therapy available for them, um, it can be a small molecule where they take um, a small molecule every single day. And the idea then is the small molecule will inhibit something that's either an aberrant signal or a receptor or a protein or enzyme that's become dysfunctional causing the disease. So you take the pill every day, um, you have to have uh, the receptor or the enzyme occupied by that compound to stop the signaling. Um, and, and really uh, what happens over a period of time is resistance builds up to that compound and ev- eventually therapy becomes less effective. The protein degraders are, are radically different. They, they actually uh, hijack the cell's natural process uh, for protein degradation. In every one of our cells, there's a a balance between protein synthesis and protein degradation. That's how you get protein homeostasis and a balance, a healthy balance in your cells. And the way that's done is by the ubiquitin ligase machinery in your cell. Um, The cells monitor uh, the the normal lifespan of a protein. Um, If it gets past its normal lifespan, the ligase machinery comes in, tags the the protein with ubiquitin. Mm -hmm. Once you get four ubiquitins uh, on your protein, then it's dragged off to this uh, organelle in the cell called the proteasome. Mm-hmm. And the proteasome is basically a garbage disposal unit in the cell for proteins that are past their useful lifespan or a disease protein. The protein shredded down into peptides and eventually amino acids flush back into the cell mm-hmm. for future protein synthesis. And what Craig did was he said, that, that's, a, that's a system I could hijack mm-hmm. and design molecules 
heterobifunctional molecules. He called them protax or proteolysis targeting chimeras. Mm -hmm. One end of the molecule uh, is a ligand that recruits a specific E3 ligase. The other end of the molecule uh, binds to the protein that you want to degrade. Mm -hmm. And the, the protac brings these two proteins into close proximity, the ligase and the targeted protein. Ubiquitins get transferred onto the protein, and yes, it gets shuttled off to the proteasome and degraded. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting feature is the protac is then released uh, right. at the proteasome and goes back and does multiple rounds of this degradation. Mm. So it's not an inhibition process. Right. It's not an occupancy-driven process. It's hijacking the cell's natural um, protein degradation and basically eliminating that disease-causing protein mm -hmm. from the cell as much as we can. Okay. And, and protax, they're technically small molecules, though. Is that right? Yeah, the small molecules. They're, they're okay. slightly larger than average small mm -hmm. molecules and more in the range of 800 to 1,000 Daltons, whereas your, mm -hmm. your average small molecule is probably under 500. So they're, they're lar larger than average, but they are small molecules. Okay. Awesome. And so that's kind of the theory behind the technique. And, and what your group has done is you've, ha you've got a couple programs right now, um, one in metastatic, HR positive, HER2 negative breast cancer, and then another one in prostate cancer. So I wanted to start by asking you some questions about ARV471, which would be your estrogen receptor protac targeting molecule. And so far, we've seen some very exciting data, 42% uh, clinical benefit rate, as well as a safety profile that's very attractive. And I was hoping you could give our listeners some context on how that compares to the standard of care in this patient population. Absolutely. And, and when the program started a few years back, the, the focus at the time was um, validating the platform mm -hmm. um, and validating the platform in such a way that people would say protein degradation works in settings where other compounds are maybe starting to uh, decline in terms of um, efficacy. Mm -hmm. And so one of the areas that the team looked at was, um, was uh, estrogen receptor uh, therapy mm -hmm. and, and looking at a comparison to fulvestrin. Fulvestrin is a degrader, an estrogen receptor degrader. The molecule is very good, it, um, but it is an intramuscular injection. Mm -hmm. uh, so an oral therapy would be uh, beneficial. And it's maxed out in terms of its ability to degrade the estrogen receptor. You probably get in the range of 40 to 50% degradation. So there's an opportunity to create an oral uh, degrader that was um, like a, um, uh, um, a fulvestrin, but oral. Um, and, and have better degradation, get levels of well above 40, 50%. So that's how the program started. Mm -hmm. And as we uh, produce our data uh, in mid-December last year, we can see that our compound right now uh, looks as though it has a best-in-class profile mm -hmm. when you compare it to the other CERDs that are ahead of us that, mm -hmm. that were a similar stage of development, and in particular, fulvestrin. Uh, we have, on average, 62% uh, degradation, although several are at the 90 uh, and above percent degradation. We have the safety profile uh, that is very good compared to fulvestrin and the other CERDs. And, and most excitingly, a clinical benefit rate, as we announced in mid-December, of around 42%, mm -hmm. which is really remarkable because of the patient population we're in. Uh, all the, we, we tried to do a, an apples-to-apples -apples comparison as best we could with the other compounds, but in reality, we were the only uh, compound going into a trial where 100% of the patients uh, were post-CDK4-6, mm. and 70% of them were post-fulvestrin. Uh, mm -hmm. So a very highly resistant patient population, probably um, uh, you know, in the range of 60 or above, 60% or above of the patients 
having non-ER driven disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get, first of all, good safety profile, uh, great exposure data, but to see this clinical benefit rate of around 42% uh, right from the get-go was really, really encouraging and bodes well uh, for the program as it moves forward. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in patients that were already treated with fulvestrin. So there's obviously an opportunity here for um, some kind of molecule to come in and, and continue to hit that pathway and also see success. So it's uh, it's very exciting. Regarding the safety, do you have does your group have a sense on on how your molecule is able to achieve that? Is it a degree of specificity to the estrogen receptor? You think? Well, it could be a number of things, um, and it's difficult to say right now. That will mm. be elucidated in the months and years to come. But these molecules are very different from the, yeah. the SERDs. That's a completely different chemo, chemo profile. It's not inhibition uh, per se. It's right. degradation, although there's some element of inhibition at the beginning. Um, so um, how we have the mechanism, in other words, is different from mm. the kind of um, the, the less targeted degradation approach. Um, so we'll see uh, as that pans out. We we clearly don't have some of the so far. We don't have some of the uh, safety issues and tolerability mm-hmm. issues that some of the other CERNs have, um, and we'll track that. And we we're, we're hoping that that turns out to be the fact that uh, this is a very different uh, chemical mm-hmm. and a very different mm-hmm. mechanism uh, from from the the other compounds in the clinic. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, that's awesome. And so you guys have a number of different programs that you're moving forward with. There's a Veritac expansion, which is monotherapy treatment. I think I saw combinations with Ibrance or Everolimus. And then you're also potentially looking in the neoadjuvant setting. So I think among all these different programs, is, is there one that has you most excited? And maybe could you give us some insight on what your ideal path to approval would look like for 471? Yeah, because clearly we're, we're very much still exploring the profile of the compound. And then yeah. uh, we're, even though we're in phase two with the study, and we started uh, combination studies with Palvo, we have Everolimus as a, as a planned study, and a set of other potential combinations. Uh, the clear path for us right now is getting to the point where we can um, select the, the right dose and get into pivotal studies in phase three. Right. Now, the most significant thing that's happened since December is we signed a a deal with Pfizer, um, and that that deal is a co-development, co-commercialization deal on 471, mm-hmm. and that really is going to help us um, execute our plans e- even more effectively um, and be able to accelerate the plans as, as well. So we're very excited about all of the trials because now we can actually lay out uh, the stall, so to speak, mm-hmm. have less of a worry about you know linearity, do one then the other. There's a lot of parallel activities we can now do with having a partner such as Pfizer. Um, and that will allow us, I think, to close the gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, we're starting off in this late line uh, patient population. Uh, the aim is to move into earlier lines of therapy, and, and the neoadjuvant study will be an example of um, mm-hmm. of, of showing that. Um, and the, the whole aim is to is for four seven one to become the endocrine backbone therapy of choice mm-hmm. for any other combination, and and seeing whether or not it has a position as a monotherapy as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. If you had your perfect situation, what would be the first indication you think the company would apply for in regards to 471? Or is it just too early right now? It's, it's too early to okay. say. I mean, obviously, we, the, 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 the trials right now are in that late stage population, so there's a potential there. Um, now we have a partner uh, with Pfizer. We're, we're obviously now in, in you know, the, those types of discussions about what that mm-hmm. indication would be. Okay. Um, but it gives us lots of optionality, mm-hmm. uh, which is great for, for patients as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
And yeah, the collaboration with Pfizer, what an exciting deal. Upfront payment, $650 million. Equity purchase, $350 million. And then uh, milestones of up to $1.4 billion. So just very, very, um, I don't know, committal program, I would say, that you know, Pfizer's really jumping in on this molecule. And it seems like it's, uh, it's very exciting. Um, can you give us a little background on how the collaboration came about? I assume in December you released the data. Uh, it gets a lot of people excited. How did that progress from there? Well, in, in, even rolling the clock, the clock back mm. a little bit further, there's a number of companies that have been tracking our Venus and the protein degradation space. Our, both our AR and our ER programs garnered a lot of interest, even at the very early stages. Mm. And we were quite clear that we wanted to move those programs forward ourselves. We felt we could build the company uh, on the back of that. Uh, but then when the data came out in mid-December, the interest was was huge. Mm -hmm. um, and so we decided that maybe we should talk to some of those companies and see whether or not our game plan for 471 could be enhanced, uh, accelerated. And, and if that was the case, um, would, that be, would, would this be the time to do a deal? Mm -hmm. So we did run a process uh, with a number of companies. And um, at the end of it, Pfizer were the, 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 com the company standing there uh, as our first choice. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're very excited to have Pfizer. Um, there, there are no local neighbors here in Connecticut. Mm. Uh, it certainly makes the interactions a lot easier, even the, with the world of COVID right now. Mm. Um, but yes, that, that their, their um, vision for 471 matched ours. Their ambition uh, for 471 matched, matched ours. And, uh, and so far, uh, the collaboration has been excellent, uh, mm -hmm. as we thought it would be right from the get-go. Yeah. Okay, great. That's good to hear. And I'm kind of curious, I don't know how much you can comment on this, but did the team at Pfizer have a commentary on any of your prostate cancer assets? Um, well, this, this, was, this was purely a, a focus on uh, 471. Okay. The whole, the whole, we weren't uh, talking about 110, and we yeah. haven't uh, gone out talking to any uh, potential partner in 110. Okay, okay. Um, great. All right, so when it comes to 471 then, I believe the companies disclosed that the full phase one data set will be presented at the San, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, and that'll be in December. Can you give us a sense of you know, what the completed phase one data set might look like or what will be included in that release? It'll be, it'll be everything okay. that we have that's you know, um, you know, old verified data we have in our databases, all the analysis has been done. Okay. So it'll be a full update from um, last December. So okay. more patients, more doses, uh, any other responses that we have, an updated clinical benefit rate, basically everything mm -hmm. uh, that we have and to give a, a, as complete a story as we can on the phase one part, recognizing the fact that we moved on to phase two a while ago. Um, so for us, this is a little bit of a kind of retrospective, but it's fine because mm -hmm. uh, it's a good story. And uh, so, and, and then we, we uh, look forward to the, the following year where um, we'll have uh, further data uh, from, from the, uh, the, the phase two data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you think the, the next sort of data presentation, will it be in the Veritac expansion study, you believe? Well, yeah, now, now we have a partner, we have to sit down and, and, oh. and plan with them. We had initially said we'd give an interim readout later this year. Uh, mm -hmm. We've decided not to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll work with our uh, partners with Pfizer and, and uh, come up with the game plan for yeah. when we'll uh, do that, that, that update. Um, but, you know, next year would be mm -hmm. an appropriate time to do that. Okay, great. Exciting. So I wanted to shift gears now and talk about uh, the prostate cancer program, which is also very extensive. And I think from the outset, it wasn't clear to me the difference between ARV uh, 110 and ARV 776. 
And mm. they both target the androgen receptor, but can you give us a, some color on that? Absolutely. So um, we, we knew the profile of 110 really well. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew all of the extensive preclinical studies that we did showed the different AR point mutations uh, that we were able to degrade, the overexpression of receptor and how we operated there. Um, but the one thing we, we also knew is that it didn't degrade um, L702H. It was a particular uh, mm. uh, androgen receptor uh, mutation. Um, and in the process of coming up with a backup, we, we said to the chemist, as we're generating a backup, which is you know, a smart thing to do, see if we can fix this one, this one issue. Mm. And they did. Uh, they were able to work out why uh, the compound wasn't able to degrade L702H and came up with a really good compound that does, plus it mm. degrades all the other mutations. And so the decision was to move that forward fairly aggressively into phase mm. one. And at some point next year, we'll have a, a, an end of phase one set of data on 766. Mm. We'll be able to contrast and compare that with 110. Mm. And, and by that time, we'll also know whether or not L702H as a mutation, um, we'll know the incidence rate, we'll understand whether or not that's a significant issue for us in the market mm. or potential market. And we could be able to position maybe 766 and 110 in a different way. Mm. Uh, so we're, we're, we're glad we made the decision on yeah. that. Um, and having a backup, but having a backup that fixes um, um, one of the mutations that we knew we didn't degrade. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was done by some structural biology, so it was really smart chemistry that did it. Yeah, okay. All right, that's that's good to know. And so ARV1110 is, uh, is further along. Um, the data to date looks also very exciting in a heavily pretreated population. You've been showing some PSA50 effects, and I believe in the whole population, the metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer group, 14% um, achieved that PSA 50, and then a subset of those patients that harbored this T878H875 mutation, 40% of them achieved a PSA 50 response. So that's, that's super exciting too. And I mean, I assume you didn't plan for that, but is this going to change your development plans moving forward? Yeah. And when we entered the trial, we knew that it would be again in a very late stage setting. Um, it was third line plus. Mm -hmm. But what then, as the trial ran, we realized we weren't just in third line plus, we were in fifth and sixth line, right. um, heavily yeah. uh, resistant patient population. A lot of the tumors actually not AR driven. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was a very tough setting for us. Um, and when you look at the, the different therapies I've gone into later, later stages, you could have maybe expected in that late stage population around 10% PSA 50 right. responses at best. Um, so we were actually pretty excited when we saw some of the first data coming out and we were, you know, significantly above 10% and even more excited when we actually got the molecular profiles from some of the tumors and realized there was quite a significant, significant signal coming out of those particular two uh, mutations uh, with many, many more uh, PSA 50 and PSA 30 responses. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, 80% of the patients with harboring these mutations show some sort of PSA 50, a PSA 30 response. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a significant response. So that it did change our attitude a little bit with saying, well, even in this incredibly late stage population, we're, we're capturing a group that probably still have tumors that still have an air-driven disease marked by these mutations. Um, and therefore maybe there's a, a, a faster approval process by, by uh, generating data around that particularly strong molecular profile at the same time as continuing to mm -hmm. profile the compound broadly. Because the idea is the, the 110 will have a position, certainly in late stage, but also um, moving further up the treatment paradigm, where there'll be, you'd assume, more and more AR-driven disease. Mm -hmm. 
So that's the approach we're going to take. We're pursuing um, through the, the Veritank study. We're looking at, the, sorry, the Ardent study. Mm -hmm. We're looking at uh, a subpopulation of this molecular profile. We're also looking at L7OTH. We're looking at the um, spice variant V7 uh, uh, tumors uh, and wild type and uh, overly expressed. So we've got all of the patients in there. Mm -hmm. And by the, the end of that study, we'll have a, a really good data set, we believe, to show whether or not the signal is still there, mm -hmm. uh, has it consolidated, and telling us what the, the rest of the profiles look like. Mm -hmm. And that will give us a path forward, we believe, in terms of the next set of pivotal studies. Mm -hmm. Okay, very exciting. And I think it's just it's so interesting that because your technology is able to get more degradation, you're actually able to uncover um, patients that can actually respond to more AR-driven therapy, which they couldn't do without a technology that could actually do more degrading. It's it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, so that's, 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 that was our hope, and it's, it's, it's gratifying to see actually playing out. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned your phase two ardent study. So this is so this won't be considered pivotal, right? After that data is collected, you'll analyze it and then kind of move forward in, into a pivotal study. Is that right? Yeah, there'll be we'll we'll do a um, a study um, both in terms of tracking down that signal even further, but also a more broad study uh, which will be um, part of the pivotal study. Okay. And so the, at the end of it, we hopefully have um, a set of data that will show the signal is a robust signal mm -hmm. of efficacy, and and then we'll have the other uh, broader patient population as well. Okay. Okay. Good to know. And so I believe the companies disclosed that the. Phase, full phase one data will be expected at the ASCO GU in February. Is that right? Yeah, because that was another set of data that we we're hoping to try and get out at the end of this year, mm -hmm. uh, doing an end of phase one. And then we realized that we were generating so much data, because phase two had started about a year and a half ago. We generated so much data uh, with phase two. Why don't we just combine everything in one story rather mm -hmm. than having a, uh, a piecemeal story, end of phase one, then a, a, some okay. kind of um, interim readout. Let's combine as much as we can the story so you get the full picture of what we're actually seeing and uh, that that should be uh, the the appropriate place to do that okay so we'll get some date some phase two data at this conference as well yeah there'll be some okay. some of the it'll be full phase one and I'm, I'm, there'll be some of the um interim from the uh Arden trial okay and so the full data set will that include like resist response rates and things It'll like be everything that? okay yeah, again same thing we want to make that's why we want to make it yeah. as full as possible yeah um, it will have um, you know m more doses than we showed mm -hmm. uh, in oh. December, more patients, uh, any efficacy, PSE fifties resist all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, good to know. Just wanted to get uh, clarity there. And so you kind of alluded this before, but um, maybe you can explain why. I'm curious. The team is not really looking for a partner for the prostate cancer program. Well. It you know, our, our original game plan, even for 471, was to, to go as far as we could on our, on our own. We always recognize the fact that, it's certainly in that space, having mm -hmm. a strategic partner could enable the development of 471 really effectively. Right. And that's proven to be the case when we did the deal with Pfizer. With 110, I think we've got uh, a fairly, we hope, a faster track approach with uh, this molecular signal. Mm -hmm. We believe we can chase that down uh, over the next uh, year or so. Now, that doesn't mean that at some point, again, a strategic partner might give us a bigger advantage in terms of a global launch uh, mm -hmm. or even the fuller development. So we're open to it. It's just that yeah. not, we're not pursuing that right now. Um, we want to generate the data, mm -hmm. um, get 
um, get the data that actually convinces us and, and move the uh, the program forward that way. Uh, and then if it's appropriate uh, at some point in the future, yeah, I mean, we'd be happy to talk to other uh, companies. Okay. All right. That makes sense. You want to make sure it's the, the right fit. Well, yeah. I mean, right now, because of the deal that we did with Pfizer and because of the cash raises that we've done, yeah. the company's in a fairly healthy financial position. We've got about $1.6 billion um, in cash and... Uh, Mm-hmm. other uh, investments. So we have the ability to take 110 and mm-hmm. the rest of our pipeline forward uh, our, on our own yeah. and build the company as we have to for uh, the, you know, the for 471 and 110 over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That makes sense. Okay, very cool. So I wanted to kind of shift gears and talk about your preclinical pipeline. And just broadly, what has you most excited about the different things you guys are doing preclinically? Yeah, so um, we have a preclinical pipeline that's a, a, is now a kind of a mix of a whole set of oncology targets uh, moving forward, um, immuno-oncology, mm. um, and then the neuroscience and neuro-rare. Mm. So quite an interesting blend. Mm-hmm. You, they don't actually go together. Um, but because of the different properties that we were building into Protax, and a few years ago, we found that we could actually make Protax not only oral, but brain-penetrant. Mm. And we get very excited by the idea of moving into neuroscience, hitting some of those classic targets that others have been trying, like tau, like alpha synuclein, mm-hmm. um, and 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 use the protein technology to see whether or not protein degradation would work in that setting. So we've built out a, a neuroscience team um, over the last few years under the leadership of Angela Kikesi. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about that portfolio because I think when we get the clinical candidates coming out from that portfolio, there'll be a whole series of them uh, coming out over the next several years. And we'll be able to see whether or not we can truly drug some of these important targets in the right setting with the right amount of uh, drug using a mechanism that's never been tried before in, in, mm-hmm. in, the, in those settings. So that's I'm really excited about that portfolio. Mm-hmm. And then on the oncology side, so the prostate cancer and estrogen, uh, uh, the breast cancer programs, well-known biology mm-hmm. we, we knew going into this that uh, if you modulated the androgen receptor and estrogen receptor it could lead to clinical benefit there was no ambiguity about that the ambiguity was would the prototype work with protein degradation work and would it work in a highly resistant setting yeah. and we're on the path to showing that's the case but when craig set up the company what he actually was most interested in was deploying this technology into the undruggable space about 80 percent of proteins that are in the the proteome that have not been drugged. And he believed, and I think he's right, that protein degradation and protax uh, would be a, an entry point, a significant entry point into that space uh, that would be very exciting. So the, the next set of <clears throat> targets we have in oncology is a real mix of truly difficult to drug and undruggable targets like, well, well KRAS is a great example because that's now starting to be drugged. Yeah. But KRAS, uh, MIC, but also some difficult uh, targets like BCL6 and a few others. Um, so we're very excited about those. They'll be the next generation of programs coming over the next uh, two or three years. And our idea is to get to a clinical candidate every year from mm-hmm. the portfolio. So we end up with quite a significant overall pipeline mm-hmm. uh, over the next few years. Okay, very cool. And yeah, just when you were talking, I was thinking about you know different CNS diseases, you know how you've been able to achieve more degradation in breast cancer and prostate cancer, how that's actually led to more of a response. I wonder if you could do something similar in CNS where you know the traditional methods might not be getting 
um, might not be targeting those molecules enough or maybe a protein degrader might be able to. So that's uh, that's very interesting. Well, there's that and also the, 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 I don't think these targets have actually been truly drugged. I don't think the antibodies have got to, sure. to the brain sufficiently or to the right regions. Some of the other small molecules haven't truly drugged the targets. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the next phase, getting molecules that truly drug the target. Yeah. So you can run the trials to see whether or not these mechanisms actually work. Because right now we yeah. still don't know whether or not if you do something with tau or alpha-synuclein, will it lead to something significantly clinically um, and, and, and clinical benefit for patients. So yeah. that'll be, the, that'll be the, the, the obviously next phase, getting the molecules to the clinic, getting them mm -hmm. into patients, and then seeing whether or not a drugged target actually has a clinical benefit. Right, right. Okay, so how close do you think we are from potentially nominating an IND candidate in the CNS space? Well, um, last year, much to, to <laughs> the annoyance of my CSO, Ian Taylor, I said the company would have five INDs between mm. 2020 and 20, the end of 2023. Okay. Uh, 766 was one of them. Uh, we're well on track for the other four, and that includes uh, at least one of the neuroscience um, um, INDs. Um, TAU has been our lead program for quite a while, although mm. right now we're in a lot of discussion with external um, academics about the species of tau that we should be looking at. Mm. Uh, should it be the aggregated form? Should the, yeah. the phosphorylation level? How much of tau should you degrade? Um, and also the transmissible form or the monomeric form of tau. So we're actually looking yeah. at that and saying, let, let's let's pick the right pathological species or let's go forward with maybe more than one. So that's a really interesting debate. And it opens up that debate because mm -hmm. uh, with the degrader, you can come up with different ligands to tackle these different uh, pathological forms. Um, and then we have some other undisclosed neuroscience targets that are progressing very well. And the reason we, we've got a, a big bunch of our portfolio that's not disclosed is it has become a very competitive space. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's exciting to see it, but we also don't want to be telling people this what's doable and, and maybe what's not doable. So yeah. we, uh, we'll tend to now announce the things about our programs when we get to uh, IND level. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and it seems like now, you know, there are a lot of competitors in the space. But it really does seem about the pipeline. It seems like about how you can successfully take a candidate from discovery all the way through the clinical program. So um, that seems to be most interesting. And yeah, regarding KRAS, it, it does seem like, yeah, it's been, it's druggable now, but the safety profile, I don't know if we're all the way there. So it really does seem like potentially using the ProTac technology to come up with a molecule that has a, a cleaner profile. And I imagine that would be very competitive on the market. Yeah, I think the whole space, I mean, it's exciting to see the compounds that inhibit G12C, KRAS. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's clearly things that could be enhanced about those molecules in terms of the profile. Um, but it's just exciting to see them in the clinic and, and yeah. having some benefit. But yes, there's other KRAS mutations that drive quite a number of different uh, cancers. Uh, we believe uh, a degrader in that space, targeting specific mutations and also having pan-mutation approaches uh, could have a very significant advantage. So mm -hmm. that's one of the programs I'm most excited about out of Venice. Yeah, okay. All right, very cool. Yeah, lots of uh, lots of good stuff there, John. And I think really my last question, you touched upon your cash position, which is pretty substantial. It gives you a nice runway. Does the company have any other plans outside of just the, the developmental pipeline to put that cash to work? Anything you can share with us? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we certainly have a very ambitious plan for 471 and 110. And as you know, clinical development is not cheap. Um, so a, a lot of that money will go there. We have to scale our organization from 
you know, when I joined the company, I was employee number 40. Uh, we're now over 250 people. We'll have to double in size to be in a position to, if we get to that stage, launch two products globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of the money would, would go that, in that direction. And we have a, a, a large portfolio in research that has to transition to the clinic. Mm-hmm. So a lot of money will go in there. Uh, we're also enhancing our technology platform. The, the platform that we generated the company from in 2013 from Craig, we've added and adapted that quite considerably. Mm-hmm. There's lots of inventive ideas about proximity-based approaches. So you can, by doing Protax, you can show that you can hijack a cellular system and, and basically uh, enable a protein-protein interaction well, there's other things you could do related to that as well. So we're also exploring uh, different technology solutions in protein de- degradation, but potentially elsewhere. Um, and then we've, we've looked at external ideas. I mean, we, we mm. did a, a joint venture with Bayer uh, mm. uh, a couple of years ago to set up a, an agrochem company called EarthBio. And okay. so we, we deployed all of our technology into the company, hired the people. It's based in North Carolina. And that's doing remarkably well. Uh, yeah. A very innovative approach potentially to plant health, plant disease using protein degradation. Hmm. Okay. Ah, I haven't looked into too much of that. I'll, I'll have to take a look. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it's an exciting new. I mean, if, if nothing else, it shows that the technology is portable yeah. from human disease into other settings. And it's not surprising. Plants have many more E3 ligases than humans. And it's a very, very controlled environment. And so the, the thought of being able to put a small molecule in there that could hijack a, a natural cell or process in a plant um, to get de- degradation in a specific way is actually pretty exciting. Hmm. Okay, very cool. All right. That's uh, most of the questions I had. Um, John, is there anything we didn't touch on that you think we should talk about with regards to Arbanus? No, I think I think you covered the whole gamut. I mean, it's a very exciting stage for mm-hmm. our Venice, obviously, but the, in general, the protein degradation area, as I said earlier, a number of different companies uh, in the space. I think you're going to see uh, many, many more compounds moving into the clinic. There'll be a lot more data generated mm-hmm. from the clinic over the next couple of years. And that will shape and form people's opinions about how adaptable and comprehensive protein degradation is going to be as a, as a therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hopefully are going to continue to lead that area mm-hmm. um, and in terms of uh, the technology approaches and also where our pipeline is. Um, but I, I, I really do think it's fantastic. There's so many different companies in the space now uh, designing therapies that uh, hopefully are really going to help patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you guys have been quite the leader so far. So I, I look forward to seeing all the updates in the future. Great. So the company's name is Arvinus. Is there um is there a social media or Twitter you want to share? Yeah, I mean, well, um, I wouldn't remember off the top of my head, but we have a Twitter account, okay. we have LinkedIn, um, and obviously our website arvinus.com. Yeah. Um, I'm even I'm on Twitter. So. Oh, all right. I'll have to give you a follow then, yeah. John. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Don't have too many followers, so I'll be I'll appreciate it. <laughs> okay, I'll help you out there. Um, All right. Well, thanks a lot, John. I really appreciate your time. It's been great talking about the company. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap it up. But I want to thank everybody for your attention and we'll see you next time.